0: By the way, we are now a part of the Salesforce family. That's why we have a new home and a new look. Otherwise, you can expect the same great stories about success. 2015 was the hardest year of my life. It was just, I felt like I was getting kicked in the gut over and over and over again. I had the worst show of my life I was in front of 10,000 people at the field trip festival in Toronto. Everything was going wrong. Like I couldn't hear myself in the monitors, but we were like ready to play. We we're on stage and I was like, where's the drummer? And I kind of like partway through the show, I kind of felt like I was having like a brain aneurysm, just like felt out of body and totally disconnected from what was happening. It was, you know, like this dark soul searching, reckoning period of my life where I kind of had to come to terms of like, well, what matters? Like, why, why am I doing this?
1: You're listening to Waste No Potential, and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. Welcome to the end, the end of the first season of Waste No Potential. So this is the perfect moment to dig into one last saying, the end is always the beginning. It's kind of like another expression you might know, when one door closes, another opens. The whole reason we have these sayings is because life is full of moments when we all see a door closing in front of us. Moments when we lose hope, when we despair, when we can't see a way forward. That's exactly when we need to remember that in every ending is the seed of a new beginning. Some people have a special talent for keeping that in mind. A resilience that lets them see setbacks as obstacles instead of conclusions. A relentlessness that lets them forge a new start when something comes to a close. Today, I'm speaking with one of those almost magical people. And he's an example of approaching every end like it is always a new beginning.
0: Uh, My name is Dan Mangan. I am a musician, a songwriter, Uh, And in recent years, the uh, co-founder of a startup in the music space called Side Door.
1: You might know Dan Mangan as an award-winning West Coast musician, but he's also an entrepreneur. He's one of the founders of Side Door, a company that matches musicians and performers with performance spaces, whether that space is a cozy bar or somebody's backyard. It's a business inspired by Dan's own early days as an aspiring musician.
0: Well, so I I mean, we'll have to rewind it a little bit. So, you know, when I was cutting my teeth as a musician, I did a lot of house concerts. I remember booking my first show in Calgary uh, at this bar called the Ironwood. I did it all over MySpace, and I begged them to let me come and play, which they kindly did. And four people showed up. And then six months later, I played in this guy Doug's backyard, and there's like 60 people there. And they don't know who I am, but they trust Doug. And they passed the hat. And I walked away with like 500 bucks. And, you know, it was just like sold a bunch of CDs. This is back uh, compact discs, <laughs> an old item. And I just remember walking away going like, that's that's crazy. Like, there's no overhead. It was a better experience for everybody. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just tour like this until you had an agent, until you had, a, you know, a means to sort of have a, have an audience in the clubs? So fast forward a number of years and I had a little uh, imprint of a record label called Matic Records and I was signing baby bands that had no audience and people that I thought were great and I was trying to get them gigs and I found it was really difficult to get them gigs in bars. And so I just put out a call online and I started collecting a spreadsheet of hosts that were interested in doing sort of off-grid concerts. Um, And then I met Laura Simpson who is the co-founder of Side Door and she's the boss, she's the CEO, but we sort of connected on this this idea that there could be this sort of like access point, this sort of like uh, global network of um, DIY hosts and artists. You know, fast forward now, we're, we're in it for the last five years we've been working on Side Door and there's more than 2,000 hosts in North America and more than 5,000 artists on the platform. You know, we're a venture-backed, I've learned how to raise money from VCs, which is not something that I ever thought I would be doing.
1: Starting Side Door was a new chapter in Dan's career, but it nearly ended before it really began. That's because the business started just a few years before the COVID pandemic brought the curtain down on live performances virtually overnight.
0: You know, I mean, there was a moment there. We, we had Side Door had a partnership with um, South by Southwest. And we, we had booked all these tours down to Austin for bands in Side Door spaces. And, this, you know, we were kind of culminating with a big showcase town in Austin. Um, and we literally had bands in vans and everything was canceled. It was sort of like the big shutdown. And, you know, we were, we were, we were like, are we sunk? Is this the end of Side Door? I mean, we have a platform that's around gathering and it's the one thing we can't do right now.
1: It's one of those moments, a turning point when, quite literally in this case, the world closes a door right in your face. So it's a good thing Dan had spent his whole career cultivating the kind of resilience that gets you past seemingly insurmountable barriers. After all, the music industry isn't exactly easy to break into. I mean, Dan had to work tirelessly to make it as a professional musician. That process? Well... It's like you hit a wall over and over and over, reach what seems to be the end of your career. And then what makes the difference? Well, it's whether you can find a fresh beginning in each of those endings. Can we hear your story of how you got into music in the first place?
0: Yeah. Well, as a kid, I mean, there was always music around. There was always instruments sort of playing around. And then I remember when I was in the early years of high school uh, in Toronto, I was at a school where they had classical guitars that you could like basically borrow from the music room and there was a teacher named Mr. Shirelli who uh, he was just like this really passionate guy and he really wanted us to feel the music and I remember this moment he we were learning me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin and so he's like talking about the lyrics and there's there's like this lyric in there about like Bobby kept me warm in the night and he's like talking about, yeah, and they're making love and they're out on the road. And, you know, it's all very passionate. The whole classroom full of like fifth graders, everyone's giggling and thinking it's how oh, he's, he's talking about sex, you know? And I just remember in that moment, looking around me, all these kids were sort of like, they couldn't handle it. They were giggling. And I just remember being like, I feel you, man. I get you, you know, like, like the romance, you know, the sort of intensity, the passion, the artistry. And I remember, just sort of like holding a guitar. And I was, it was this thing that I was good at and I was better than most other kids at. And then that set me on a lifetime of seeking external affirmation.
1: <laughs> in Vancouver, British Columbia, Dan started a high school band,
0: a, a band in high school called Basement Suite. Uh, we were really bad. I remember covering Everlong by the Foo Fighters and my friend Julian was crowd surfing and it was just like, yeah, we're doing it. We're rock stars. This is amazing. I was uh, going to UBC. I was getting an English degree. When I was at school, um, I was playing around my open mics and cafes and stuff like that. And then I was introduced to a a producer in town named Dan Elms. You know, it became time. I was like, okay, I think we need to make a full album here. Things are, you know, I, I really want to make a go of this. I remember going with my dad down to Van City Credit Union, and he essentially like co-signed on a line of credit for me to make a record. But I needed like ten thousand bucks, you know, to pay musicians and to pay the producer and pay everything. And uh, I didn't have any money, you know. Some bank manager or whatever, you know, lender uh, allowed me this this credit line.
1: With fresh debt on his back and a guitar in his arms, he started working on his first album.
0: It was a crazy experience. I mean, I remember I wanted my friends to play rhythm section, but the producer was like, no, 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 we need, like, pros. You know, no teenagers are coming in here to play drums and bass. So he brought in some people. Um, The studio was, like, in his basement. It was all laden with blankets and stuff like that. It was a very kind of, like, DIY hodgepodge studio. He was this epically tall skinny rail thin guy who had really lived a crazy life he had lived you know he'd been homeless living on the streets in paris he was a wonderful guitar player he was a vegetarian and yet he had this like massive saint bernard dog who he would let he, like he would put like raw chicken carcasses on the floor and this dog would just like devour these chicken carcasses it was like this sort of growing up like here i am I've taken out this massive loan to make this record happen. And, like, who, you know, am I trusting the wrong person with this thing that is my creative life force? It was, you know, sort of everything on the line. And then I spent years just peddling that record to anyone who would listen. It's called Postcards and Daydreaming.
1: So. Now Dan had a finished album, but he was still a relative baby in the industry and really just warming up.
0: Several years of that, just trudging, being so broke all the time, getting deeper in debt, um, serving tables at the keg on Granville Island in Vancouver. That's where I met my wife. We served tables together. It was it was wild, you know, it was the beginnings. It was cutting my teeth. I was going to Europe. I was booking tours in Europe, like over myspace. I remember trudging up, like, you know, German train stations with a guitar and a piece of luggage filled with merch and a backpack with clothing.
1: Then it was time to start his second album.
0: So I, the next record, I applied for several grants to try and get them, get, get it paid for. It was called Nice, Nice, Very Nice. Um, and I kept getting denied. And I doubled down. I still had all the debt from the first record. And I I basically did, like, an analog version of Kickstarter, where I went to family friends. I raised about 9,000 bucks and that was enough to sort of get nice, nice, very nice off the ground. I went to Toronto and was recording with this guy named John Critchley. Literally the week after that album was mastered, um, I got a letter in the mail saying I had received a grant for $11,000 and that was gonna pay for the record. So the record was finished when I found out it was gonna be paid for and that was like, Such a moment, you know, like, oh, my God, like, thank you, like, oh. And that record changed my life. But there was a dark moment before that record got made where I was like, I'm already like $15,000 in debt. And that record changed everything. I sent it to every person in the Canadian music industry. I did everything I could. I was just grinding and grinding. If
1: you think of a music career as a series of locked doors... Well, nice, nice, very nice. Was the crowbar that was going to tear those doors off their hinges. That album launched two of Dan's early hits, Robots and Road Regrets. He snagged several awards, got his music licensed across the US and Europe. He was even shortlisted for the Polaris Prize, which is a really prestigious music award.
0: It was this hilarious moment of like, you know, I've I've made it, but I haven't. And over the cycle of that record's lifetime, you know, went from playing to 100 people in my hometown to playing to 1,000 people in Toronto, you know? I remember we sold out the Orpheum in Vancouver, which is, you know, holds about 2,800 people or 2,600 people. It's like a big ordeal, like the big hometown show, big Orpheum, everything's got to go big, got to go big. I remember getting on the cover of the Georgia Strait, which is, you know, the, the Arts Weekly here in Vancouver. And somebody that I worked with at the restaurant. I remember, like, him kind of, like, looking at the Georgia Strait and then looking at me and going, like, oh, like, way to go, rock star. And he kind of said it with this sort of, like, pejorative tone, like, "Like, oh, you big shot, you know? And I was like, f*** you, man. Like, I am hustling my ass off, and I am still broke. And I'm chewing everything I can. And you have the audacity to, like, like, like minimize my efforts. And I'm still serving tables, by the way. Like we're, we're, you know, like, you know, I haven't quit my day job. I remember my manager at the Keg calling me up and he said, every month that you're on the payroll, but you're not getting paid anything. Because I I hadn't worked in like six months, but I I couldn't dare to quit because I needed the money. You know, every time I came home, I wanted to work a couple shifts. I was just touring constantly. And he said, uh, you're, I'm quitting you because I have to fill out this paperwork every month that you that you don't get paid anything, but you remain on the payroll. And I don't like paperwork, so you're done. Congratulations, you quit.
1: This was one of those moments when Dan could have panicked at the door closing in front of him, a door that was still paying the bills. Instead, he embraced that ending as the beginning of a new phase in his life, a phase that picked up fresh momentum when, while touring, he met the executive director of the South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Brent Grilke.
0: After the show, he said, he's like, what you're doing, it's it's working and it's great. And he said, one day, if you just keep going, you're going to start to be paid for things you forgot that you did checks are going to arrive in the mail and you're going to be like oh yeah that thing it was more philosophical he was talking about sort of like planting seeds and if you just plant seeds everywhere you go eventually some of those seeds are going to turn into trees you know and you're going they're going to turn into trees while you weren't paying attention while you were looking the other way that philosophy was huge i remember i had this sort of like image in my head at the time I was walking down a very long hallway, kind of like The Shining, you know, the hotel. And I had a key in my hand. And I was going up to every door and unlocking it. And I wasn't opening the door. I was just unlocking the door. And every single... I would go to my right and I'd go to my left. And I would unlock each door as I walked. And the idea was the longer I walked down this hallway, the more of those doors would open behind me and people would fill the hallway with me. It was sort of like... If I just... Give everybody every invitation to come along on this musical ride with me. Some of them will jump along.
1: That's a lovely gem to take from this conversation. The power of inviting other people to come on the journey alongside you. Dan's first album, his second album, losing his job. Well, they were all moments on his path until eventually there he is winning the ultimate Canadian music award, the Juno. Not just one, but two. I'm curious, you know, f- given that that feeling, though, like how, how did it feel to you when you won the Juno? Like you're up on, st- you've gotten two mm. Junos. Like,
0: Well, awards are funny because, you know, it's a popularity contest. It's not about art. It doesn't matter what award it is. Uh, even the ones that claim to only be about art, it's a popularity contest. It's just a different kind of popularity contest. And I'll say this, like when you get nominated for something and you go to an award show, you have to go in with a sort of like trained apathy of like, this is all a bunch of garbage and I don't care. And part of it is like a security blanket, you know, because you're preparing yourself to lose. Um, And when you win and they call your name, God, it feels good.
1: Those Junos were another crowbar, opening even bigger opportunities. But opportunity is a funny thing. There's no guarantee that that opening, that next door, will lead to the outcome you're looking for. In just a few minutes, we'll find out what happens when your big moment turns into a little letdown. You're listening to Waste No Potential, a new podcast about incredible stories of spotting untapped potential. The show is brought to you by the good folks at Traction On Demand, and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to follow us wherever you're listening from. You can also find us at tractionondemand.com forward slash podcast. Dan Mangan was coming off a high, winning two Juno Awards. But he struggled with finding the sweet spot between the art and the business of producing music.
0: Uh, as I was coming up as sort of like a troubadour folky singer-songwriter guy, there was a, a number of acts doing it on a much huger scale that I would get, you know, kind of compared to, like Mumford & Sons or whatever. And... Um, I've met those guys; they're the loveliest guys. But I had a real resistance to being lumped in with this scene that I didn't feel like it described who I was or encapsulated what I was trying to do. From the from the outside, it felt to me like there were other bands who were making huge arena anthems out of folk music, and that was never my intention. And um, and I was always saying goodbye to like this sort of like plaid-wearing white guy with a guitar and a beard. I was always trying to ditch that. I was always like, no, that's not who I am, you know? And so the end is the beginning. Like, I feel like every record cycle for me... Well, first off, I I go into it thinking, you know what? I've learned my lesson. This time is going to be different. I'm not going to have a huge existential crisis. And then, of course, every single record, when it's about 80% done... I have a moment where I'm like, I'm terrible. This is awful. I suck at this. I should quit. Nobody's going to like this. Um, and I just get, like, you know, down in, down in the dumps.
1: Eventually, he got caught up in a moment that felt like an end and that made him realize something about himself. Have you Have you ever had a moment where you felt like you were... A door was closing in your face, like, like there was an end that was being imposed upon you that then maybe did give birth to a, a new beginning. But, like, I'm curious about you feeling like, oh, shoot, this is it. This is the end of the road. I just got fired from the keg.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, 2015 was the hardest year of my life in so many ways. It was just, I felt like I was getting kicked in the gut over and over and over again. I had the worst show of my life was in front of 10,000 people at the Field Trip Festival in Toronto. Everything just, like, started late, and I couldn't get, catch the cadence of what was going on, and I kind of struggling, and I couldn't sing well, and I couldn't hear myself. So that I kind of got off stage and went and sat alone for a few hours. And then a few weeks later, um, the Polaris Music Prize was the long list was announced polaris prides itself on being like an art It only only about artistic merit right 2015 i made this record club meds and put it out and in my mind club meds was just 10 times artistically what the previous records were i thought you know this is finally the thing i've always wanted to say i feel hugely, you know, like uh, certain about what this record and what this work was. And it was largely ignored by, it didn't get pop. It wasn't on the radio. It didn't, it wasn't popular. And then also the people whose affirmation I was looking for the most, the critics, the art, you know, the sort of art snobs, they didn't get it either. And nobody got it. It felt like the biggest rejection, you know, possible in my career that this, totally art forward daring weird record that I loved was getting completely snubbed by this artistic you know critic community and uh, so that mixed with the field trip gig mixed with like turmoil in the band and like people weren't getting along very well um, and then eventually later on like the drummer my drummer Kenton quit and it was just sort of like everything was. Tumultuous, nothing was like the sand was shifting beneath me and I didn't feel any sturdiness in art or in personal life. Like it was really, really tough year. I remember talking with my dad, kind of having a heart to heart and he said uh, something along the lines of like, I know it seems unlikely in this moment, but one day you will be happy that this all occurred. You know, you'll be glad for this year. It It will have taught you something. I remember kind of being like, yeah, yeah, sure thing, but you know, fast forward a couple of years, and I, he was completely right because he made me realize how desperate I was for that affirmation, and how desperately I wanted to be thought of as cool, and how desperately I, I needed like the pitchfork world to tell me that what I was doing was cool. Like, why why am I doing this? Is it just to be perceived as cool? Is it to be popular? what is it about what i'm doing that is is the reason and uh and i kind of realized that all you know facets of you know uh, back pattery is just a big popularity contest and the only thing that should matter to me is if it's real if it's honest does it make the world a slightly easier place to live in if this exists um could it be helpful to somebody in a hard moment could it be helpful to me, and can I help? Basically, that's it. Can I help? Can I do something that that makes me feel like this art is going to be of service? And that became my north star, rather than being cool. And I think since then, I've made you know two really special albums that I'm really really proud of, and um, and I'm in a much better place now. And I think the art is better than it's ever been. And uh, that's really exciting.
1: Dan found an end after all. But it was more of an end to seeking external validation, big rewards, even bigger praise. It was the start of him cementing the idea of what he was putting out in the world, how he could build a deeper connection for his listeners and sometimes even for just himself. Those realizations propelled Dan through the early stages of Side Door, the business designed to help artists find venues off the beaten path. That brings us back to where we began this episode, with the grim reality of trying to grow a live music business in the middle of a global pandemic. As performances around the world were canceled, Dan and his business partner had to consider the very real possibility that their venture had reached its end. Unless they spotted some hidden potential.
0: You know, at the time, I remember everybody, every every artist was doing Instagram Lives, like, you know, Alicia Keys and Chris Martin, everyone was like, sort of like, here's my home and here's me playing the piano. And it was very charming. And it was sort of like, you know, right when we need it the most, here's art. Um, and it was all happening for free and it was all happening over Instagram. And I remember thinking like, Man, like even these massive stars, I would go and I'd watch them for like 90 seconds or like three minutes or four minutes. I'd be like, okay, I got, got the gist of it. That's <laughs> enough, you know? And I was like, there's got to be something that feel like there has to be a way of connecting online that feels a little bit more uh, visceral or human and engages me more. And so I... Even side door was al- already a distributed company we had like people living in all sorts of different places so we were already really used to zoom and i was like i'm just gonna sell tickets to a zoom and uh, i tried it you know and i gave away all the money to charity and i was sort of just like oh i'm gonna you know if anyone wants to join me saturday morning i'm gonna do a zoom and i'll play some socks. i didn't have the tech figured out i didn't know how to like put my pro tools rig into zoom i didn't have, i didn't sound good it was just me literally strumming into my laptop mic it sounded like absolute garbage and it looked like garbage I didn't have any lighting or anything like that it was awful but it was incredible like people were like crying I could see people dancing I could literally see hundreds of faces all together on the screen and I could see into people's homes and I could see them landscaping and baking and petting their dog and playing with their kids and and it was like whoa okay hold on the tech needs to be better, like this needs to sound better, but there's something going on here that's really special. And so we leaned heavily into Zoom and we, we hacked all of the bits of like, how do you do it? How do you moderate these things? How do you host them? You can spend a hundred thousand dollars on production to have a five camera shoot on an incredible soundstage with smoke and lights. And you could spend all the money in the world and nothing will recreate the feeling of being at a real concert. You know, doesn't matter how high the fidelity is, how, how good it looks. However, you can spend basically no money and invest all of your time into trying to foster a connective, visceral, fleeting moment or series of moments. And what you would find is at the end of it, when everyone turns off their, their meeting, that they feel connected. They feel like they had... A really amazing experience and it was heavy and like tom odell did a show british kind of piano playing pop star guy you know i would like unmute his fans in between like i'd vet them and i'd sort of go in the chat and find them and uh people are showing him their tattoos of his lyrics and they're crying and they're saying i can't believe i get to meet you like these there was this one girl oh man she broke my heart she's laying on her on her bed and she's sort of you know, she's talking to Tom, and she's crying, and she's crying. She's sort of like overwhelmed with emotion. And her mom opens the door to her bedroom, like, "What's going on in here? Like, what? Are, you know, what? Are you okay?" And she's like, "I'm talking to Tom. I'm talking to Tom." And he's like, "You know." And she's like, "Here he is. He's right here." And uh, and so the mom comes into frame in front of the in front of the computer, and she's saying to Tom, like, "Oh, you have no idea what you've done for my daughter. This is so special." You know, like. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the background sort of like directing the show and spotlighting people and unmuting them. And I'm like, I'm welling up, you know, like it's real. Like these are, these are real experiences. You can't have that sort of immediate, interactive, beautiful human exchange if it's just a one way broadcast. I would notice, I did about 12 Zoom shows over the pandemic. It was amazing because I would see a lot of the same faces And I would start to unmute those people. And in between songs, I'd be like, what's your name? What, where are you? And people like, I, you know, it's daytime where I am, but it's clearly night where you are, what's going on. They'd be like, oh, it's two in the morning in Indonesia. You know, like, I mean, I've never toured in Indonesia. Like I've never toured in Estonia or Brazil or India or China. And what I was finding is that people were logging onto the show from like all over the world. And I, it wasn't just that they were streaming it. Like I was meeting them. I was saying like, where are you? What is it like where you are? What's your name? You know, you know, I heard stories of people who've been listening to my music for a decade and had never seen me play live. And now they've seen me play like eight times online. You know, it it doesn't replace being in a room with a bunch of other people and their hearts are beating and, you know, the kick drum is going through all of your chests and nothing replaces that in real life. However... I did find that there were times when I would, like, have, like, a really heavy experience, um, like emotional experience during a, a Zoom show. And then afterwards, like, I would sort of hang up. And I would feel eerily similar to how it feels when you get off stage. And let's say you're a band that has a big audience and you can play to, like, thousands of people. And let's say that they're, like, clapping and yelling and cheering and you're bowing and you've just had this, like, beautiful exchange. And then you go back to the dressing room. There's always, always a slight tinge of bittersweet, you know, when it's all over. And um, there's just sort of like, oh yeah, real life. Like I was just, you know, like I just lost myself for two hours on stage. I wasn't in my head. I was in my skin. I was being spontaneous and I was living, you know, doing the thing that I know I'm supposed to do. And I had like that same tinge of like oh, wow, that was really special and heavy and I feel really fulfilled uh, like artistically and spiritually and I kind of missed them already. (laughs) Like I I miss those people. They were my friends for the last couple hours. And, you know, you know, I think that like truly what makes a great artist or a successful artist is somebody who can successfully decouple and yet keep those two streams alive, the business and the art. And you have to hustle on both sides. You have to work your ass off to get good at the art, and you have to work your ass off to have a, a real career. And you can't let those two worlds fester each other because they can. You know, I've made poor business decisions out of something that I thought was like a good artistic decision. Some of those I was really proud of. Some of those I kind of regretted later. And also, I have, you know, made poor artistic decisions based on, you know, thinking that it will help my career. And some of those I've been thankful for and some of those I've regretted. So you can't be too precious. You have to, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You have to be able to look back at your old work and simultaneously hate it and appreciate it. You know, you have to be like, I look back at my first couple records, I'm like, oh, God, this is not, this is not me. This is not who I am anymore. And yet, it certainly was who I was then. And I'm really thankful that it happened because it got me to hear it, you know.
1: Dan is back on tour now. In fact, I spoke with him just before he headed off on another round of shows his ability to find a new beginning in each ending, well, it's a wonderful beacon for us as we end our season. Because while podcast seasons end, there's one thing that begins over and over and over. That's the search for the lessons in each human experience. The insights, the inspiration you can find in every organization and every person. Looking for those lessons... That's how we waste no potential. If you were going to think of a song that you've made that conveys this idea of the end is always the beginning, what song would you pick?
0: Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the song Lynchpin has literally, like, the hook at the end of the chorus is every morning's a resurrection, shaking off all the dead, one more go at it, and it's all about rebirth and sort of starting over, yeah.
1: And with that, let's let Dan play us out.
0: What isn't broke, it'll break somehow Mm -hmm. Till morning comes broken hours, everything is now, waking up somewhere with someone somehow, in the broken house. Every morning's a resurrection, shaking off all
1: Today, my guest was musician and co-founder of Side Door Dan Mangan I'm Alexandra Samuel and this is Waste No Potential brought to you by Traction On Demand with production support from Jar Audio and that's it for season one of Waste No Potential I just want to end with a wrap-up thank you to all of the wonderful people who made this show come to life for sound design and audio mixing Pietro San Marco our producer Sean Holden Project leads Jessica Wills and America Turner, creative director Jen Moss, and our marketing and growth specialists are Christy Bolton and Candace Bartlett. The folks at Traction On Demand are Victoria Porcelato and Rachel Peterson, Patrick Breely, Apples Milkovich, and Pratiksha Jain. And finally, a big thank you to all the guests who joined us on this fabulous journey. And to you, the listeners who've followed us all along. If you haven't heard every episode, do go back and listen, and please let us know which one is your favorite. I'm Alexandra Samuel. Thank you for listening.
0: The Waste No Potential podcast was created by Traction On Demand, a company acquired by Salesforce in April of 2022. All Waste No Potential podcasts can now be found at salesforce.com slash resources slash podcasts.